The Rebel Collective Podcast. One even fair as a sun was shining. This podcast is sponsored by Kelly's Bar, Oswald Street, Glasgow. Live Irish music every week from your favourite singers and bands. Check out the Kelly's social media page for more information. How are you all doing, folks? And welcome to the sixth Rebel Collective podcast. This is a monthly music-based podcast that will feature various different guests of a rebel nature. We'll be getting to know some of their favourite songs and the songs that help shape the artists they are today, and hopefully gaining a bit of insight into their background and influences. My name is Coach, and our guest this month is David Rovix. David began his musical career performing in small clubs and bars, as well as playing on the streets and subways. By the mid-90s, David was spending most of his time in concert tours around the world, and in 1996, released his first album, Make It So. David went on to release many more albums which are all available online for free. A very outspoken political singer, David spends most of his time on the road all over the world and has shared stages with musicians, politicians, celebrities and activists. David, welcome along. Thank you, Coach. Thanks very much for coming. I know you're a busy man these days, so thanks very much yeah. for taking a bit of time to come Pleasure. and see us. Uh, we usually kind of kick things off by going right back to the, the very beginning. Um, just your first introduction to music, how did that come about? My parents are both musicians, so I was uh, raised uh, with music uh, around from birth. They were both classical musicians, so I, I, got a, I, was, I played classical music as a kid, and, and then I was exposed to other stuff along the way. Okay, okay. Was it guitar, classical guitar you were playing? No, classical or? cello. My parents are both classical pianists. My dad's a composer, and uh, wow. my, mom, my mom's a concert pianist, and they both play organ as well. Okay, so what about singing? Where did you first start to, to I got sing? into singing, um, I mean, I was, I was exposed as, at the age of 12. I went to a summer camp where there were people involved with the anti-nuclear movement who were singing mm-hmm. songs about the anti-nuclear movement, and that was my first exposure to kind of what I'm doing now, you know, singing mm-hmm. songs about current events and history and stuff like that. And I, that definitely had an impression on me, but I didn't start singing myself until many years later until I was like maybe around 19 is when I got into okay. singing, playing guitar and, and writing mostly, well, pretty much entirely really bad songs. Right, okay. <laughs> <laughs> so maybe people that weren't as familiar with your work, how would you describe the, the music you play? I'd say I'm, I'm basically, I mean, in terms of what I'm doing, it's basically part of the very long-standing sort of troubadour, bardic tradition of singing songs about what's happening in the world and, and history and just uh, of humanity. Um, but, I mean, stylistically, I'd say I'm in, in the sort of somewhere in the punk folk or folk punk uh, kind of uh, okay. realm, uh, you know, at least... I, it's if I, you know, I don't know. It's it's always one of these things with musicians trying to put them in in stylistic boxes. I mean, we have to do it. We have to describe what we're doing, but it's also like hard because you know we all have lots of different influences. And, of course, you know, of course. So. What what were your influences? You... Oh, um, the early influences in terms of uh, writing songs about about. Uh, about current events and history and this kind of thing. Um, uh, uh, Phil Oakes was an early influence. Mm-hmm. Utah Phillips, 
uh, Jim Page uh, in, a, in a big way uh, were those were and Pete Seeger certainly Bob Dylan Buffy St. Marie uh, yeah those were all major early influences I didn't actually discover um, uh, punk rock until much later <laughs> but okay, okay. I, and I and I also I discovered traditional Irish music early on and, and Christy Moore uh, when I was in my 20s so not that early influence but definitely early-ish influence uh, Dick gone uh, you know as well uh, I discovered oh, course, quite right, early yeah. yeah okay just to stay mm-hmm. a few years back can you remember your your very first gigs yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Yeah. What were they like? And I mean, my first, um, my first gig where I where where the, like the show was kind of advertised and where people came to hear a concert, like mm-hmm. that was in I guess it would have been nineteen ninety three, and um, and my father organized it, and uh, and and I was doing. Um, and I think entirely uh, cover songs. That was going to be my next question. What your what your set was like back when you were first starting out. So it was mostly covers. Yeah, yeah. it was mostly covers, and I uh, pretty much um, I, I think when I first heard Utah Phillips uh, play and and speak uh, when I was nineteen, I was one of the things he said that that made an impression on me was if you want to be a good songwriter, you have to be really steeped in whatever tradition you're into mm-hmm. and so when I was quite young when I decided this was more I pretty much decided at some point in my early 20s this is what I wanted to do mm-hmm. although I didn't necessarily stay on the path you know consistently until I was like 30 or so but I uh, went about trying to learn um, hundreds well learning hundreds of songs uh, systematically just because I thought uh that if I wanted to write good songs, I needed to really course, yeah. memorize a whole lot of other people's songs, and and uh, which I, I mean, I already been listening to, but I, mm-hmm. you know, systematically went about, you know, sort of learning lots of other people's songs, and then what I was singing was a lot of, uh, I mean, I think I learned at that time probably well many dozens of Jim Page's songs, many dozens of Phil Oaks's songs, many dozens of Bob Dylan, and. Um, quite a few Utah Phillips songs and a whole lot of traditional Irish and traditional bluegrass songs. That's kind of what I was doing when I was doing the cover songs back then. Okay, and I, I read somewhere as well that you were, you were a full-time busker for a few yeah. years in Boston, is that right? Yeah, Yeah, full-time so for three years and also yeah. part-time before that too, yeah. Still playing live a wee bit or just mostly most of the busking on the streets? Most Well, for, for many, when I, pretty much the whole time I lived in Boston for like uh, many years, I was, I was uh, busking, mostly busking and then also... Um, running open mics, usually one or two open mics in different places every week. And then I was sometimes doing gigs that, like indoor gigs, like a feature at an open mic or okay. stuff okay. like that. Occasionally a more, you know, featured-ish gig, but mainly in the subways. Yeah. Okay, so obviously you're very politically active. Uh, so mm. did the political music come before singing uh, or like b- before the politics, if that makes any sense. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. No. I mean, for me, it was like uh, I was exposed to political activism and political music at exactly the same time when okay. I was 12, and because it was at the same summer camp <laughs> where there was a lot of both going yeah, on. Yeah. And uh, so 
Yeah, and it's it's kind of um, it's a it's this actually. I mean, when I think about it now, uh, looking back on my childhood, um, I was a child around the t- tail end of this whole phenomenon of left wing summer camps yeah. in the United States, which was also a big phenomenon in lots of other countries. But it was a it, it was, I don't think, in, in all the countries I tour, and it's no longer a, a big phenomenon to the extent that it was, but in many countries it was a big thing, and lots of kids uh, were politicized at mm-hmm. these uh, summer camps, and, and yeah. uh, this camp that I went to still exists, but it's not like, it's not like that anymore. It's not, you know, and yeah. a lot of them, that if they still exist, they're not sort of explicitly left-wing camps anymore. Right, <laughs> but it, okay. it used to be a thing, and a lot of kids were... Uh, you know, uh, got a good education at, at such places. Okay, obviously with the with the political music as well, you do a lot of protests and rallies, play protests and rallies and stuff. But you still do the the gigs and concert venues. Do you have a preference? Okay. My favorite kind of gig is at a protest, not singing, not necessarily singing at the at protest itself, although that can be fantastic. Okay. But usually, like when the G8 is meeting somewhere, like where, wherever Rostock's or, or Scotland or, you know, wherever there have been such gatherings, you know, in, mm-hmm. in over the years. Generally, there are people from all over the place who come to these things. And, uh, you know, from like, say, you know, so and then there was all kinds of events that are happening that are surrounding the main protests, you know, like, uh, you know, yeah, yeah. and so those events that are happening often will include concerts. Mm-hmm. And so then the people coming to the protests are people coming from many of the countries that I regularly tour in. Yeah. And yeah. it's the same crowd that I'm playing in, in those countries. So, you know, that's always like, if I'm ever going to feel like a rock star, it's like when I'm playing for ones. a concert for a bunch of, you know, activists from all over Europe who, who I've, you know, just seen in different contexts touring around, but now they're all in one place, you know, that's mm-hmm. those, those are the most memorable concerts. Sometimes, obviously, the atmosphere that these can, things can take, I kind of turn for the worst. Is there been any times you've been playing at a protest or a rally when things haven't haven't went as planned <laughs> yeah like, i mean like i mean one of the one of my favorite gigs uh was uh playing at this protest camp at, at, at rostock before the g8 in 2007 mm-hmm. um but also that was also one of the gigs where things uh not that particular uh, concert in the at the camp but at the train station before the march happened it was june first 2007 uh when uh i did a i mean they really know how to organize protests that attack folks in germany it was like one speaker for 10 minutes and otherwise it was two musicians me and a german hip-hop band each with a half hour set okay that's that's a great protest and <laughs> i mean you know so the idea was get everybody you know riled up to go on the march yeah, uh, yeah. where there was then and the march ends at a at the port where there was going to be a a much bigger uh, rally but the rally with the 20,000 people at the train station uh, within five minutes it, there was just like the whole city was you know there were stones flying in every direction and police cars on fire and, and the last song that I sang before everybody went off to march was burn it down and, <laughs> and then within, within five minutes there's police cars on fire and I thought oh I hope that the, nobody makes the connection here you know <laughs> I hope they have good free speech laws in this country you know 
But uh, yeah, I never got any trouble for that. But it was uh, one of those situations where I was kind of thinking, oh, I wish I could play at the big stadium. You know, you always want to play for a bigger audience. Right? Of, course, so I'm, yeah, yeah. of course, I'm happy playing for this wonderful 20,000 people at the train station, but I'm thinking, oh, there's going to be 100,000 at the next stage, and I wish I could play there, you know. And and then by the, by the time the rally got there, it was just tear gas everywhere, and it was not happening anymore. <laughs> And of course you are, you were involved in a, a protest in Glasgow, um, was it six, seven years ago? Was it the Glasgow Uni Union? Yeah, that was some... it the Free Hetherington? That was in Glasgow, right? Yeah, yeah that, that was yeah. another example. That came up. <laughs> <laughs> this was another use of the song Burn It Down in Interesting oh, Circumstances. Because... <laughs> In that, in that, the the protest, the, the students and folks had taken over the Senate building, right? Mm-hmm. So then uh, they invited me to come sing in the Senate building, the occupied Senate building. Uh, after the Free Hetherington had been uh, taken over by police, then people marched around and then they took over the Senate building. Mm-hmm. And then um, and then I had a little, I did a little show in there. Uh, but then uh, one of the folks who had been arrested and injured earlier in the day was released from. Uh, from jail and and came to the building, uh, but then by then uh, there were police guarding the door, so we couldn't get out, and she couldn't get in, uh-huh. and so then we did the we played more music uh, so that she could hear. We went out to the porch, like, uh, and then apparently there were like top university administration officials walking by at the time that me and several dozen. Uh, folks were very loudly uh, singing "Burn It Down," uh, <laughs> <laughs> and somebody said that they were somebody who was involved with that was convinced that the administrators hearing us all sing "Burn It Down" was what uh, prompted them to settle, uh, come up with a settlement for so that the people would leave, uh, give them the other building back, you know, so mm-hmm. they'd leave the Senate building because uh, they were apparently, allegedly concerned that this might be a literal. Uh, you know, thing that we were planning on doing next, you know. Okay. But of course, it was just completely uh, metaphorical. <laughs> okay, so obviously, uh, that's you arrived in Glasgow. So how, how do you find playing in Glasgow? You've obviously played here a few times now. How, how's the, how do the audience take to a David Rowitz gig? It's, I mean, it depends on the gig, like, yeah. and who, you know, where it's happening and who's organizing it. But some yeah, of my yeah. best crowds uh, ever have been in Glasgow. Yeah. I mean, like Glasgow, Belfast, London, and Copenhagen are definitely the, the four cities that I have, the have had the best gigs in, uh, you know, over the years. It's not that they're always uh, like that, but there's there's the best potential in those four cities for the best gigs. Well, that's good to know. Glasgow can be quite an unforgiving crowd at times. <laughs> it's good to you had a good experience when you were here. <laughs> I mean, you know, that's why it, it really depends on the venue because, I mean, it's, if it's a venue where it's a real concert, then there's a lot of people in this town who want to hear this kind of music. But mm. there's also, of course, a lot of uh, bars where that's, you know, you're not going to hear a concert whether you come to hear a concert or not because yeah, there's yeah. going to be people, you know singing, uh, you know, <laughs> other songs at, while you're singing yours yeah. and, and drinking green things, that, like, you know, 
I mean, what is this at the at the at the uh, where the gig is happening tomorrow night? I mean, at last time I was there, they were drinking. I mean, a lovely place, lovely people, but they were drinking something called venom, which, which is uh, green. It's, it's very popular in Glasgow at the minute. For, it's very for some disturbing. <laughs> Alcoholic drinks. It's a green called venom, and then and then there was somebody who fell over outside and hit his head on the sidewalk, and it was yeah, not you know. That, that's what I mainly remember. <laughs> Okay, well, speaking of green, <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, with the podcast that we've been doing, we're quite, we'd be quite familiar with the kind of the Irish scene in Glasgow or, or mm -hmm. further afield. But can you tell us about maybe some of the other movements you've been involved in yourself? Yeah, I mean, um, I was uh, definitely when when the, I mean when the. the uh, anti-capitalist movement, the movement against corporate globalization mm -hmm. that was kind of uh, big in Europe and, and the Americas, especially from like the late 90s till around the mid-noughties. Mid yeah, I yeah. was uh, very much involved with that movement and uh, the anti-war movement uh, that really kicked off in a big way after 9-11 and, and was very sustained and, and present in the U.S. until and also in Europe until around again 2005 or so when it kind of fell apart okay. i you know i was very much involved with those movements and as far as like sustained movements those are the movements i've been involved with as a musician that have been the longest lasting ones but then there've yeah. been lots of others that have uh, well uh, others that have been um well, more, uh, you could say, sustained for a long time. I mean, like the, you know, the, the Irish Republican movement. I mean, that's, yeah. uh, you know, that's been more of like a constant backdrop in society and, you know, Scotland and Ireland for decades, you know. Uh, sure. But in terms of movements that come and go, you know, there's always other movements that are just, there's always, you know, whether you call it a movement or, or whatever you call it, there's there's always activities and there there's a backdrop of you know like the, the you could the labor movement for example. Yeah, yeah. I've, I'm always doing gigs for for labor unions. I don't know you know whether that's not a movement in the sense that the anti-capitalist movement was a movement for several years in the sense that it became like this grassroots social movement that grew and became had a life of its own in some sense like mm -hmm. unions and squats and left political parties in Europe which are all you know, institutions that are basically my bread and butter, uh, you could call them all m movements or you could call them all institutions or something in between, but I was certainly involved with Occupy Wall Street for a few months, uh, very much uh, when that was happening, and other various movements around uh, supporting undocumented workers in the U.S. and, mm -hmm. and around, I mean, basically, when I'm doing tours, there most of the gigs are organized by left wingers of one kind or another. So yeah, yeah. if there's a movement happening, it's oftentimes uh, that I'll be doing gigs that are related to that, and then I'll write songs that are related to the movement or will have okay. already done so, and so that also uh, makes it more likely that I'll, that I'll plug into a movement if I've written a lot of songs that are related to it. Okay. Of course, you've done a, a tour of the was it the West Bank? Done a tour of Palestine. Uh huh. Uh, so how how did that come about, and how how did you go on when you were over there? 
Uh, it went over yeah. great. Yeah. Um, and, uh, and and I think, I mean, to a large extent, it's more like the idea of somebody uh, touring there and doing songs on this subject. Right, of course, and, yeah. You know, because uh, there's a big, big language barrier. I mean, there's lots of Palestinians who speak fluent English, especially mm. in the diaspora and in East Jerusalem. But in uh, the West Bank, uh, most Palestinians are not uh, fluent English speakers. So it mm-hmm. was definitely like, you know, we theoretically like this guy who's uh, come here to, you know, show solidarity with us but we're not particularly into the music or you know or or anything but yeah it was a wonderful experience and uh it came about because uh i well basically in in 2000 when the second intifada started i wrote a song uh called children of jerusalem and then uh, that started getting a lot of i started getting a lot of hate mail from zionists for, for about a week and then i started getting all kinds of uh emails from palestinians around the world saying you know very nice things about the song and then that is how i started meeting a lot of palestinians and that's often the case with a lot of the movements i get involved with it's uh, because i wrote a song and then i started meeting people and then started writing some more songs on the subject and then it, you know it just kind of snowballs and that's one of those subjects i've written the most songs about of course yeah, yeah. <clears throat> and that's another movement i mean that, and that was really uh happening I mean that the uh, well the as far as the the Palestinian solidarity movement, largely led by the Palestinian diaspora at the time, was uh, really uh, strong from September two thousand until September two thousand one, mm-hmm. and it you know it kicked off with, with the Intifada starting in September two thousand, and then mm-hmm. when nine eleven happened, that almost immediately killed the movement. I mean it still existed in a much more anemic form for a couple of years, but it was really like that. That, you know, understandably terrified lots of, you know, the entire Arab uh, population and the yeah. entire Muslim population really into uh, being afraid to speak out because you didn't know what might happen. And, you, you know, obviously you still don't know. I mean, it's a very mm-hmm. uh, scary time to be a Muslim in the United States. Mm-hmm. And it's been a scary time to be a Muslim in the United States for a long time, but especially since uh, 2001. Right, okay, okay. Uh, so at, at the minute anyway, you're, you're touring your, your new album. Is it The Ballad of the of a Wobbly? Yeah, Ballad of a Wobbly. Ballad of a Wobbly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so the songs in that, how would you describe the kind of writing process? Is it all current events or do you look at historical events and write them? A lot of mix. I mean, more and more I have been uh, drawn to writing songs about history because mm-hmm. I think that you can talk about the present by talking about history and often... You can uh, talk about the present in a more effective way by talking about history because when you talk about history, you're not uh, you don't press the alarm bells as much. Mm-hmm. So mm-hmm. like even when you're talking about the present, at least of course, if you can avoid using alarm bell words like uh, you know all kinds of different words that that are overused in in the media that that give people certain ideas like immigrant or or refugee or asylum or uh, welfare or, um, you know, anarchist, socialist, communist, there's a lot of words, capitalism, you know, if you use these words in a song, you're going to turn people off right away, most of the time, because yeah, they'll be, yeah. oh, it's doctrinaire stuff. But the other thing is, that even if you don't use those words, and you're talking about current events, people have a lot of, you know, already set opinions. And so then one of the things I find in talk, in terms of talking about current events is, you can talk about the event, some event in a way that humanizes 
people in the event without making it clear what you're talking about until people are already empathizing with the characters you've, you've, you're painting and then mm -hmm. they understand that you're talking about this thing that they probably have opinions about. Yeah. But if you talk about something historical, then they're basically free of opinions and uh, they've never heard of it. So you can tell people about an event that that they should know about anyway. So you can, you know, there's an educational aspect, but you can really speak to the present in a way that, uh, you know, really can be powerful, you know. So I, that's what I've been doing a lot of, uh, writing about current events and writing about history. And that pretty much, one of the two is pretty much all the songs on the album. And okay. I've been writing a lot of stuff about uh, the 19 teens, largely because it's the anniversary of the 100 years. And it's like... Uh, stuff that was going on at that time is actually more relevant to the present than it ever has been i'm quite certain in the united states in particular but also in europe actually it's uh it's just in terms of the history well the u.s things are more divided now economically than at any time since that period mm -hmm. so that's one way that there's a lot of uh, connection but uh, many other uh, connections as well uh and um so in terms of just like uh, uh, propaganda and, and, and how people relate to uh, overwhelming government campaigns to uh, convince them to believe things that are opposite from what they have been experiencing, like teaching people that, you know, convincing people to support the war, the First World War, when the vast majority of people were against it and how that all went down and all the, all the laws that were passed to... Uh, uh, prevent people from, you know, to suppress democracy basically in many different countries in order for this war to happen. And the the uh, the rise of the of those uh, propagandistic forces and and uh, the rise of increased state power and the marriage of the corporation and the state. I mean, all this stuff mm -hmm. was like starting around that time, and and now it's reached that whole process has now reached the most like. Uh, outrageous uh, extreme you know monopoly capitalism under trump i mean it's just this uh you know if there was any any doubt about the, the idea that democracy had been completely subverted in the united states you know uh, there you know yeah, there can't be any doubt now you know so obviously do you believe like, what you do with your songs it's more about kind of education getting the word out to everybody about all these different struggles all over the world uh, obviously, the, one of our local bands, the, the Wakes, picked up one of your songs, St. Patrick's Battalion, and I'd never heard the story before. Mm -hmm. So it's quite interesting to listen to your stuff and hear about things that are happening all over the world that you maybe would be a wee bit more unfamiliar about. Mm -hmm. Just exactly the, the kind of what your music's all about, just getting the bug yeah. out there. Education, inspiration, mm -hmm. and just uh, just music for music's sake. It's a combination of things. And, and the thing is that music uh, has played the same role, you know, historically, <clears throat> that it's that that I you know that that it's that I'm doing with it now. I mean, it's uh, it always has played multiple roles. So it's always been you know songs about events like this uh, are you know always play the role of of education for people mm -hmm. who hadn't heard about it. But it also plays the role of of like a cheerleader. You know, in, in, you know, let's gather around. You know, and 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 uh, it, it it helps build and maintain a sense of community, a sense of togetherness, a sense that we have of solidarity, uh, you know, a sense of, uh, you know, 
some kind of tribal identity, uh, it, which can be, of course, positive or negative, you know, depending on how it's being used. I mean, it, it can be used to, uh, it's a, music is a powerful force and mm -hmm. it can be used by corporations to sell products and it can be used very effectively that way and to make people identify with their products so much that they feel like uh, those products are part of their uh, identity and, and that is done through music. And other means as well, but advertising, you know, largely uses music as as a as a force uh, for selling their ideas, their products, their everything, and uh, you know, so the the elite, uh, the powers that be, have long known of the power of music and other forms of culture to convince people uh, to uh, for, of all kinds of things. Uh, whether it's around wars or or uh, capitalism, consumerism, patriotism, music plays a powerful negative role, and um, and music by the same token, uh, in the hands of the the people who you know, tends to play a positive role when it's not being manipulated by the music industry, and you know when in terms of like before the music industry came around when people you know, who did music, uh, were doing it because they uh, wanted to, uh, mm -hmm. you know, and they weren't making money at it, you know, primarily, uh, you know, look at what people wrote about and just even in, you know, any collections of 19th century, 18th century songs from anywhere, uh, you'll find uh, that they wrote lots of songs about, uh, 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 that, that could be, you know, basically propaganda for the working class, you know, you could say in a very positive sense of the, you know, the old way that the word propaganda used to mean is just a way of communicating ideas. Uh, they, uh, you know, songs about uh, against uh, being drafted into the military, songs about police uh, brutality, songs about having your land taken away by the state, you know, uh, songs about mine disasters, I mean, hundreds, hundreds, thousands of songs about mine disasters, you know. Yeah. This is what people wrote about, and and this is uh, and this is still the tradition that I'm part of, and that many other people are part of. It's just uh, I don't know if it's even a less or more common tradition than it used to be. It's I'm not sure how you'd even measure these things, but it's such a different reality now than it used to be in terms of, you know, that the different influences that would make people want to write on you know nothing but love songs i mean it's it's the whole, the music industry is an insidious uh, influence and it's hard to say how much in influence it has you know i mean beyond just the advertisers you know using music to sell products there's also the music industry telling us that we should be only writing pop songs about love and staying up all night and you know basically love drugs break up falling in love breaking up doing drugs, drinking alcohol, staying up all night, partying, those are the acceptable things to write about. And, you know, anything that's not related to escapism or romance is, uh, you know, not an acceptable topic, and that's been the case for like a century now. But, you know, so... And then the, the insidious thing about it is that so many independent artists who aspire to be pop stars but never will be spend their entire careers writing songs about this stuff because, uh, you know, they that's they've they've had their their boxes defined by the music industry and they do their best to stay within the box in order to hopefully be the next one chosen you know and most of them never will be but the box uh, you know that the music industry has created works really well in controlling so many independent artists too yeah one even fair as a sunless shining this podcast is sponsored by Kelly's Bar Oswald Street, 
Glasgow. Okay, so this is the, the part of the podcast where we ask you to bring along three songs, maybe that influenced you along the way, or maybe songs that you, you just like. Mm-hmm. Um, so if you want to talk about your first song, was it John McLean's March by Alistair Hewlett? Yeah, I just think that whole album, uh, that, that I love that song in particular, but the whole album, uh, Red Clydeside, is just a fantastic album and it's uh, and and Alistair was a fantastic uh, artist a great songwriter and uh, guitarist and singer and um, and I think that song is is uh, really representative of his uh, songwriting at his mm-hmm. at its best and uh, and the way he could bring history to life and and uh, re- like you were there and you know really but, yeah uh, that's um, that's why I chose that song and that particular artist yeah, who I also toured with a lot so as a, uh, he's also had a big influence on me we're quite glad you, you brought this one up because uh, about John McLean and the Red Clay side this isn't something that we would get taught in school No, which is quite surprising because we live in Glasgow here um, yeah. so we're glad when, when this one this one, this was one of the songs that came up Yeah, and uh, incidentally years ago I think it was a bit maybe 19 or 20, um, I went to, uh, it was a play about the, the Red Clyde side and Alistair Hewlett mm-hmm. performed after it. He was a wee kind of the after show party. So I bought the Red Clyde side CD actually. So that was, yeah. that was kind of my first introduction to everything that was going on. Yeah, great. With that back in the day. Yeah. Uh, how did you meet actually, you and Alistair? We met uh, when I was, uh, I had a gig in Glasgow at, what used to the place that used to exist um which i think it still exists in some form but it used to have like a place at the university one uh, local university was it something with a c um but uh it was uh, called the center for political song and uh i was playing there with attila the stockbroker we did a lot of touring together and and alistair was there uh, at the show in the audience and i had already heard his music before um but that's where i met him and uh, and then um, and then after that we uh, we spent a lot of time, especially uh, in two thousand seven during the uh, G eight in Scotland, um, and then uh, <clears throat> then uh, or I organized a tour for us in the U S. and he uh, like a two week tour, and he retaliated by organizing a seven week tour for us in Australia and New Zealand, which was my introduction to both Australia and New Zealand. Which was like I think two thousand, oh I don't know nine or something maybe. Okay, let's get a listen to John McLean's march. Hey Mark, did you see him as he came the Oh. And the the second song you brought along for us was a, a song by Jim Page called Paul Allentown. You yeah. can tell us why you picked this one in particular. 
Yeah, well, I mean, Jim Page is another one of those artists that has just done such an amazing job of documenting current events and historical events mm -hmm. in his uh, many, many hundreds of great songs that he's written. And uh, Paul Allentown is just one of his best uh, songs, one of many great songs, but it's, I think, such a fantastic condemnation of uh, of gentrification and and the and and the uh, all the sort of uh, uh, romance uh, surrounding these billionaires like uh, Bill Gates and Paul Allen and um, and Microsoft and and all these uh, tech giants who are supposedly all progressive and into Jimi Hendrix and whatever and they're just destroying uh, society in so many ways. Uh, by, for one thing, uh, making life in places like Seattle completely unaffordable for mm -hmm. regular people, and you know, Paul Allen uh, is is a is a great uh, representation of everything that's wrong with American capitalism, and the song uh, I think eloquently uh, makes that case. Yeah, uh, lyrically, it was. Stunning song. The, the lyrics Isn't were it? absolutely fantastic. Uh, but I'd, I'd never heard of Jim Page before. Uh, is there anywhere would he tour? Would, would, would yeah, would he the, ever tour? He tours yeah. a lot in uh, mainly on the west coast of the U.S. But he yeah. tours sometimes uh, in 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 Britain and uh, sometimes in Ireland and uh, I think uh, pretty rarely anywhere else. Um, but he. Um, He's been at it since the 60s, and you would have heard uh, two of his songs that Christy Moore recorded. One was Hiroshima Nagasaki Russian Roulette. Oh, wow. Okay. And the other is uh, Landlord. And those okay. were those were two of his songs that, that uh, Christy Moore recorded. And, uh, and that's when, uh, in the 80s, uh, he became very well-known in, in Ireland in particular because of Christy mm -hmm. Moore. Um, and uh, and but still, most people in Ireland don't recognize the name. If you just mention, at least from my experience, if you just say Jim Page, but if you say Hiroshima Nagasaki Russian Roulette, everybody has heard that song. Yeah. Okay, so Paul Allentown by Jim Page. Seattle it was barely bigger than a small town. With the evergreen trees growing up, good rain coming down, it looked so innocent then. You'd never dream to take a glance at all those baby billionaires just waiting for their chance. Now a penny makes a nickel, makes a dime, makes a dollar, makes a kindergarten CEO wanna jump up and holler, turns a software magician with a fine and friendly face into a planetary predator with his fingers all over the place. He used to call it Seattle. You the Puget Sound, we used to call it Seattle, now we call it Paul Allen Town. Uh, last but not least, you've brought along a song called Madrid by Rob Johnson. Mm -hmm. uh, so what was it about this song? Well, I think uh, Madrid is, again, uh, this, as far as uh, artists, uh, Rob Johnson, I think, is one of the best uh, living songwriters or really of any, of any time in the English language. He's a phenomenal songwriter. I actually just heard him play last night in Edinburgh, uh, in, yeah, okay. at the Edinburgh Folk Club. 
And yeah, he's he's a phenomenal songwriter, and uh, and he has written uh, the most songs of any songwriter that I know of uh, that are related to uh, the Second World War and and the everything that happened in the 1930s, the Spanish Civil War and the beginnings of fascism in Germany, and uh, you know the whole. He's now coming out with a three album. Uh, sort of a box set of songs of his that other artists recorded uh, that are all related to the Second World War. His, um, his, his father was uh, shot down over Germany. His grandfather was uh, in the First World War. And he's just, I mean, it's you don't need to have the family history to for that stuff to be, uh, you know, obviously incredibly important stuff to write about and pick apart and understand all the different things that happened but and all the very inspiring events as well as horrible events. Yeah, yeah. Um, but uh, he captures all that so well and I think the spirit of the, of the solidarity in Spain around the Spanish Civil War, uh, I think he captures uh, so well in that song. Your style of music I found was very similar to the, the three selections that you've 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 picked for us. Oh yeah. Yeah, yeah they're also so. like I mean these are also three of the most influential mm-hmm. people on me as far as uh uh you know their, their style stylistically and all three of them are far far better finger style guitarists than I am and I've uh, never even come close to figuring out how to play as well as any of them but as as and other things you know there's there's other you know there none None of them are all that much into flat picking, but anyway, they're they're all just amazing musicians that have had a tremendous influence on me. Although as a guitarist, probably uh, uh, the, the Jim Page is the one who had the most influence. And and with Jim Page, I think, uh, I mean, with a lot of my my songs, I think, uh, well, if anybody was really into Jim Page, then they would see how derivative this is. But you know, so few people. <laughs> know his music that they you know only Jim might notice you know, that sounds an awful lot like me and I'd be the first to admit yeah sorry man it's like you know I just can't seem to get away from sounding like you, you know. well let's get a wee quick listen to Madrid by Rob Johnson at you now Generalissimo In your valley of lost souls Dug by the prisoners of your war How your soldiers would sing Long live death for you But look at you now You're just another bullfight each child born is born an anarchist scratching their names on your sad old mouths and love love is an anarchist scratching our hearts on the walls of every city like Madrid so this is a wee part of the, the podcast we've been calling it the pop quiz it's just a, a few kind of rapid fire questions um, so why this type of music over other genres oh my goodness <clears throat> I think um, uh, 
basically, I, I, uh, I, the main reason why I play uh, solo acoustic um, is because it's easy and, and it's so uncomplicated and, and you don't have to try to feed a band. And, and so I basically, for practical reasons, developed a style that really works best uh, solo or with one accompanist. But I'm doing too much on the guitar for it to work in a band with a band unless I changed what I'm doing and made more room for other things. So I uh, I, I developed this style, um, you know, for really practical reasons, and then it became, a, you know, a style, I guess, or it became, you know, a, a sort of a it it just happened that way i mean you know okay. if i if i had um maybe siblings who played music or i don't know some kind of other situation uh, where where I, there were more it was more possible to easily play with other musicians and tour with them in some way that would somehow work financially you know maybe at a different time with a record label or i mean if i'd been born earlier in the 60s i maybe i would have been touring with a band you know but just because of the, i think a lot of it has to do with just time and place and and uh, practical considerations but but at the same time the whole question of what is the style of music i mean you know anytime you see a, a solo performer with a guitar you kind of think okay that's a folk musician or that's an acoustic musician well it just that just the person just happens to be playing an acoustic instrument so yeah. i mean you know i don't know I, i've recorded different albums that i think have different musical feels to them mm -hmm. uh, but i don't know if they you know that means i'm playing it a a different style or I am a different style of musician because yeah. of those albums or, you know, so it's uh yeah, a, a interesting and fraught question, I think. <laughs> ah, fair enough, that's fair enough. <laughs> so why uh, the kind of political genre of music as opposed to other types of music that are out there at the minute? Why do you play mostly political songs? Because... Um, because I never uh, had the aspiration to uh, be a pop star, and so I always wrote songs about what I wanted to write about that, that seemed relevant. And I think actually that's what a lot of people who, who write songs early on, they're, they're often writing about things they want to write about. And then later, if they decide, oh, I want to be a pop star, then they start writing only about the songs they think will be good pop star material. But I think you see, like, when you run open mics, you know, you, you see that there's an awful lot of people who are writing political material mm -hmm. because they're just writing what they want to write, you know. Yeah, yeah. So I, I uh, it wasn't, I think, some, I mean, there were definitely experiences I had that led me in a very political direction, you know, in life, you know. But as a musician, I think uh, really it was largely just I never particularly aspired to be rich or famous or be a pop star and so i i just wrote about things that seemed relevant uh, to me brilliant uh, do you have a favorite political band or singer political band or solo singer <clears throat> i think um gosh i mean uh, like if i were to pick a uh, you know, one songwriter. I mean, you know, in terms of, uh, you, I think like those folks I've mentioned, like Jim Page and Rob Johnson, are, t are two of the most uh, uh, the greatest songwriters, and they've also both uh, played in uh, with great bands. You know, mm -hmm. so I guess it's, uh, you know, that's. Uh, but as far as um, a band that that it's more known for for really uh, being a band. 
that's uh, I, I mean maybe the clash, but it's it's hard to hard to say. One that's that's a, that's a tough one. I mean I know that there's probably there's probably one that's like right on the tip of my brain that I'll think of. You know that why, why didn't I say that? You know what? I'm not, I'm Paul, not Paul sure. Sheridan from the Weeks talked about the clash a lot. <laughs> that was that was one uh-huh. of his big inspirations. Yeah. Uh, do, do you have a favorite uh, political song? Oh, 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 favorite political song. Like, gosh, I mean, one song that, that would be, uh, I don't... Uh, it's quite a tough question to put you yeah, on the spot, that's, isn't it? That's, <laughs> a, that's, I mean, it's a fine question. <laughs> Eight, one song that, that's like the favorite. That's, uh, yeah, gosh, you know, that's... Um, I mean, I, I, I probably... I probably don't, but I I think uh, I'd have to probably you know divide it into categories of political songs, mm-hmm. like like in terms of the best sort of anthemic like movement kind of song that is is just uh, in so many dimensions of it is so good. I think uh, Phil Oakes's song um, "Is There Anybody Here." is an amazing song in terms of just like I think you could you could hear that song and and you might have been ready to join the army and by the end of that song you you wouldn't you know I mean I think as far as that kind of anthemic uh, thing I think that song maybe uh I I'd, I'd maybe pick that but in terms of um the best political song that that tells a story which is like a, like a ballad uh, which is Gosh, you know, I, I don't. I, that would be that would be another category. I would say, and that would if I were to attempt to nail it, narrow it down, you know. Yeah, yeah. But uh, I I would um, I'd say one of the ones that that probably had the most uh, impact on me when I first heard it, as far as a, a ballad that tells a story that's so powerful, is uh, Jim Page's song "Anime" about the killing of uh, the American Indian movement activist Anime Aquash in the seventies. Yeah. That's uh, that song uh, would be one of the candidates, anyway, at least. Yeah, we'll need to check that out later as well. Um, so, where do you see uh, yourself in ten years? I um I I don't know I p- p- probably uh, doing the same thing I'm doing yeah. now although I I have uh, un un uh, sort of uh, unclear aspirations to do something more having to do with uh, teaching history and uh, but I don't know if that would involve anything other than just touring and and doing songs related to history but. I've been doing some stuff with academic uh, departments uh, and, uh, and and organizations that are involved with popular education, like the Zinn Education Foundation in the U.S. and uh, uh, this uh, Miami University Peace and Global Studies Department. So I, I kind of have I'm kind of working on doing more sort of direct teaching of history through sort of popular education forms but I don't know where that might go if anywhere and I don't expect to be doing anything else other than touring and performing okay. but I don't do it most of the time I only do it about five months out of the year still quite a lot it's a lot that's, yeah. Yeah, that's a lot that's a lot <laughs> life on the road yeah. uh, where do you see your genre of music in 10 years <clears throat> that I would say is pretty much entirely dependent on uh, social movements mm-hmm. um, but it's also um 
Yeah, I think that's going to be the main uh, thing that would determine uh, where the genre goes uh, and, yeah. and what, how much it grows or whether it grows and what directions it goes in. Um, I'd say uh, that's... Uh, when social movements are happening, then music comes out of the woodwork. Lots of people who would not have thought about writing this kind of stuff uh, suddenly for various reasons, uh, b both really good reasons and, and also totally opportunistic reasons, mm -hmm. they feel uh, like it's time to write these kinds of songs. And <clears throat> some of them are really good and mm -hmm. and uh, you know and and this can I think it's a way you can measure whether a social movement's happening is how much art and music it's gonna it's spontaneously producing mm -hmm. uh, but whether what how the art and music is going to go I think is is um I mean probably uh, it's really the, the question is where is the social movement where are the social movements going to go because I think the music reflects movements and it's much more art reflects reality more than reality re reflects art I think and so the art goes where the reality goes generally Okay we always ask everyone where can people see you play obviously you're on the road a lot of the time so I don't know if it'd be more appropriate to ask how do people book Oh uh, yeah, <laughs> they go to davidrovix.com. Yeah. Uh, they they can see uh, they can get on my email list and and follow me on social media and see where my gigs are. Follow me on Songkick, uh, and uh, I I tour mostly in Northern Europe and North America and occasionally elsewhere. So, yeah. Okay. Do we have any plans for for new material? Oh yeah, I'm. Yeah. I mean, I'm always uh, writing something. Uh, w w lately, I've been working on uh, writing more prose in terms of a, a his history presentation on my website. Monthly, vertical monthly slices of world history, uh, like what happened this month in history, kind of thing. But um, but I'm always also working on songs, and I've written a few songs since the tour has started a few weeks ago, and or eleven whenever that was nine weeks ago okay. and uh yeah but i don't uh I, yeah thinking about possibly collaborating with the wakes and uh yeah. <laughs> i was just talking to paul sheridan about that a few days ago uh but uh and i'd love to do some kind of a themed album but like uh what rob johnson has just been working on but i don't have any particular plans for that okay and the very last one do you have any big gigs coming up big gigs yeah. um Actually, uh, well, I'm, uh, there's, I mean, th nothing like really massive, you know, but, uh, the, the there's a party in a political party in Denmark, which is now the third biggest party in the country. It's a left-wing party called Enes List and Unity List. Mm -hmm. And, uh, I'm playing at their midsummer, midsummer evening event, uh, this, uh, Saturday evening. Um, and that's one of the last gigs I'm doing on this tour and that'll be, uh, gathering of lots of uh, left-wingers from, from around Denmark and it'll be a lot of fun but ever since uh, Trump pulled out of uh, the TTIP and TPP that uh, I've uh, you know the free trade deals yeah. that had been you know I uh, lost my my really big gigs uh, at, are on hiatus because you know when that was going on the, the, and the unions uh, were really involved with the fight against it in especially in Germany and Belgium and uh, some other parts of Europe. Then I was, I had played at some wonderfully big, <laughs> I played for a quarter of a million people in Berlin a couple wow. of years ago. That's, and that's for quite, nine that's minutes, <laughs> that's quite a few people. And for nine minutes, 
<laughs> I, I was getting no sound of, out of my guitar. And it's all caught on film. You know, for, for nine minutes, standing in front of a quarter million people, and the technicians are trying to figure out why there's no sound. Come. Finally, they mic'd it, and it took nine minutes to get, you know, it was uh, the longest so was nine long minutes name. of my life. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. To, to kind of wrap things up, you've brought two songs along for us to, to perform in a kind of live lounge session. Uh, so what's your, your first song? Well, by uh, popular demand, it's uh, Up to Provost, which is yeah. a, a song I wrote after reading uh, the wonderful uh, book about the hunger strike in 1981 called Ten Men Dead yeah. uh, by an English journalist, uh, David something or other. And um, I, uh, <coughs> I wrote uh, this song uh, about uh, Francis Hughes, who was the second of the ten hunger strikers to die uh, in '81. And um, I had been uh, spending a lot of time in Belfast and uh, with uh, particularly folks uh, who are in or associated with or related to a band called the Irish Brigade. Yeah. And um, and I just uh, heard so many songs about, uh, you know, these uh, these these the conflict and the troubles and the, and I thought I you know I gotta write one like I gotta I just wrote a song that was my best effort at writing an Irish Brigade song basically you know <laughs> so yeah and, and I think uh, it's uh, you know on so many levels really important uh, history and uh, I think um, it's it's been um, one of the most you know controversial songs I've written and it's a song I don't play in a lot of different uh, situations uh, because uh, it's one of those things where if you try to play it in a lot of places well you could you could maybe get away with it if you if you lectured for a half hour about the meaning of the song beforehand you know yeah, to, yeah. to try to put it into context you know because uh, you know this society uh, you know basically on you know, England, Scotland, Wales, and Ireland is all like a rife uh, place to talk about this stuff. Like it, in you know, there are very strong opinions in um, different directions around the the uh, troubles, and uh, you know, basically Irish history. Anything that happened after nineteen sixteen is is potentially uh, a, you know very. Uh, difficult subject in different circumstances uh, to yeah. e talk about or sing about and there's there's uh outside of uh, britain and ireland uh, it's not a problem <laughs> to sing about these things you know there's other issues that are the the uh big division ones in other societies but uh i think um it, but but i when i wrote the song i i was uh trying to tell a story that was uh that is not necessarily uh a story that's uh, you know just taking sides in 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 a conflict uh as much as uh talking about this person and and what he accomplished and what he was known for and and the fact that he mostly was known for saying the phrase up the provos in the most uh outrageous circumstances you know in the most in the circumstances where it would be the least likely situation where you might want to say that if you planned to survive for another minute but you know and and uh, people like bobby sands are bobby sands is much more well known internationally than any of the other hunger strikers and part of that is because he was a poet and he wrote uh, eloquently about uh, a lot of things mm -hmm. and uh you know Francis Hughes, on the other hand, I mean, is you know quite well known in, in certain circles, but 
but uh, it was uh, particularly known for not being eloquent and not uh, being, you know, verbally eloquent or, or uh, you know, much of an intellectual, uh, but knowing uh, what he, you know, what was right and, and, and fighting for it in, in a, with more dedication than, uh, and skill than, um, you know, probably anybody of his uh, time, uh, you know. And uh, there's, this is also, I think, one of the things about commemorating historical figures, and I know it's, it's recent history, so maybe, you know, that's not the, the term, but it is that it's the people that were more eloquent and the people that lived longer that actually often get remembered more than the people who died young and yeah. were not known for being poetic. You know, those people mostly get forgotten. And, you know, Francis Hughes may not, maybe isn't the best example of someone who's going to be quickly forgotten because, you know, there's important elements of society that remember people like him but you know by and large you know you think about like um all the americans who went to fight uh, fascism in spain in the 1930s there were two brigades you know and uh, one of them almost all of them were killed in battle uh, early in the in the war Nobody remembers them. Nobody talks about that brigade. You know, the brigade, the, the, the people that came back from Spain are known as Lincoln veterans because the Lincoln veterans are the ones who survived. Those are, they had two brigades. One was called the Washington uh, Brigade and the other was the Lincoln Brigade. And, mm -hmm. you know, it's the Lincoln Brigade that got remembered, you know, because they survived. You know, three quarters of them or something. But, yeah, it's, yeah. Uh, it's that phenomenon. And I, I wanted to write a song about uh, somebody who wasn't uh, you know the known for their eloquence you know he grew up on a farm in a troubled irish land under foreign rule and the british crown's command his father fought for ireland 50 years before but the free state cut their losses and the english won the war and when internment without trial was the order of the day when his brother was arrested and his friends were blown away when he was beaten near to death he decided come what may he throw his lot in with the provost and he joined the ira in the occupied six counties perhaps it never will be known all the foreign soldiers in our mind to Rome who decided to head back across the Irish Sea so they wouldn't have to meet the man from south of Derry. He never wavered in his battle for Irish liberty and the crowd would soon regret the day they made him enemy. The Brits called it bandit country and it filled them all with fright. In the borderlands he who walked the hills at night up the provost, that's what he said. Three little words that filled the British crown with dread. With a rifle on his shoulder, a timer and a fuse. Long may we remember Commandante Francis Hughes. Long may we remember Commandante Francis Hughes. Once he was surrounded by the SAS. How he might escape was anybody's guess. In his boots and camouflage, he didn't miss a beat. He walked right past the soldiers and out into the street. Once he came upon the checkpoint, the soldier didn't want to die. He recognized our Francis and the soldier waved him by. He didn't want to find out if he could take what he could give. He knew 
there'd be a shootout and the soldier chose to live. Up the provost, that's what he said. And from this farmer's son, better men had fled with a rifle on his shoulder, a timer and a fuse. Long may we remember Commandante Francis Hughes. Long may we remember Commandante Francis Hughes. He was the North's most wanted man with his photo everywhere. But he eluded capture with his wit and dyed blonde hair. For six years he was active, three times as long as most. He became a legend north to south and coast to coast. He came upon two soldiers out one night on patrol. They shot him in the firefight and the bullets took their toll. He crawled off into the bushes and they found him the next day. Grabbed him by the arms and they carried him away. Up the provost, that's what he said. With a shattered bone and a body full of lead. With a rifle on his shoulder, a timer and a fuse. Long may we remember Commandante Francis Hughes. Long may we remember Commandante Francis Hughes. They beat him and they tortured him and they gave him 80 years. When they brought him to the H-blocks, he was greeted there with cheers. He went right onto the blanket, and when the hunger strike began, he was the first to volunteer, along with Bobby Sands. He was an Irish soldier, and that's how he did his time. He knew he was no criminal when occupation was the crime. Bobby Sands had passed beyond us where Francis soon would be, and although he couldn't stand, and he could barely see, up the provost, that's what he said As they carried him to hospital to lay in his deathbed With a rifle on his shoulder, a timer and a fuse Long may we remember Commandante Francis Hughes Up the provost, that's what he said And soon there'd be another standing in his stead With a rifle on his shoulder, a timer and a fuse Long may we remember Commandante Francis Hughes. Long may we remember Commandante Francis Hughes. And the, the second song you're going to play for us today. Uh, yeah, so East Kilbride, I, um, I was... Um, I, uh, actually, a guy, uh, a friend in Berlin, uh, sent me a newspaper article from the Glaswegian uh, from s uh, several months ago, uh, and um, and then I wrote a song th that day, I think, and um, it was uh, and the reason it's been in the news is because of the recent documentary that a Belgian Chilean uh, guy uh, made called Ne Passeran about the uh, 
the period in the 70s when Rolls-Royce workers in East Kilbride refused to repair these uh, Chilean uh, Air Force engines. And, uh, and actually, we recently learned, or this filmmaker recently learned uh, in the process of making this film, interviewing a general in Chile, that uh, those uh, that the, that because of the actions of these uh, workers in East Kilbride, uh, the entire Chilean Air Force was grounded for a time, and so uh, it, it was only recently discovered that that their action had such an impact. And uh, so when I heard about that, uh, I uh, had to write a song about it, and that and I figured being here in Scotland, that would be a good one to do. <laughs> Dave, I can't thank you enough for coming along and doing that with us. Ah, today. thank you. That's perfect. Thank you. Thank you. Jet fighters bombed the palace We all watched it on TV The 11th of September, 1973 All across the world People cried in vain As we heard stories of the students Being tortured and slain Stories of the workers, shop stewards and the rest Being slaughtered at the new dictator's behest Labor groups condemned it, said we were on the workers' side Including all the engineers of East Kilbride People organized a boycott of General Pinochet Who had overthrown Allende with a hawker hunter jet. Then a few months later, March of 74, Bob Fulton came to work at the Rolls-Royce factory floor. He looked at the orders that had come in that day and found crates with jet engines from Chile. Jet engines from the Air Force across the ocean wide sent to be repaired in East Kilbride. It didn't take a minute for Fulton and his mates to come to the decision they would not touch these crates. Soon 4,000 Rolls-Royce workers voted they agreed to stand with the Chileans in their hour of need. Management decried them the Tory screamed and cussed, but the Hawker Hunter engines were left to sit and rust. Nowhere else on earth were workers qualified to repair the engines sitting there in East Kilbride. It's often hard to know if you've changed anything a whit. But decades later, a Chilean general would admit For a time in Santiago, there were no fighters in the sky Because the whole Chilean Air Force had not one jet that could fly They may not have changed the world, this group of Union engineers But these crates of metal sat corroding for four years so here's the British labor, how for four years it tried to do what could be done from East Kilbride. Jet fighters bombed the palace, we all watched it on TV. The 11th of September, 1973. 
Thanks very much for tuning in, folks. If you enjoyed the show, don't forget to give us a like or a follow on social media. Just search for The Rebel Collective on Facebook, Instagram or Twitter. A special thanks to David Robix for being our sixth guest on the show and tune in next month when we have our first instrumentalist guest, Glasgow-based All-Ireland fiddle champion Roisin Ann Hughes. Promises to be a great show. Thanks again for tuning in. Speak to you next month. One even fair as the sun was shining this podcast is sponsored by Kelly's Bar, Oswald Street, Glasgow. Live Irish music every week from your favourite singers and bands. Check out the Kelly's social media page for more information.